From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Dota. Twice a year, the Mayo Clinic conducts a survey. It's known as the National Health Checkup. The goal is to educate and empower people to take charge of their own health. And on today's program, we're going to discuss the results of the latest National Health Checkup, which focused on cancer. There's an emotional cost, a financial cost, and a family cost that comes from a diagnosis of cancer. So when we say that 60% say that they were touched by cancer personally or through a loved one, When you expand that circle to people we know, it's close to 100%. Also on the program, we'll learn about the latest options for prenatal screening. And treatment for pediatric ear, nose, and throat problems. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Stoda. Dennis, as you know, twice a year, the Mayo Clinic conducts a national health checkup survey. They're taking the pulse of Americans on their health opinions and their behaviors. You know, how much have you been eating? How much have you been exercising? How much have you been drinking? How much we have not been doing some of those things we're supposed (laughs) to be doing. The survey will show you. Yeah, so this fall, the survey focused on cancer, and it found out that more than 60% of Americans have experienced cancer uh, in some way, either a personal diagnosis or experienced it through a loved one. Also, the survey revealed that many barriers kind of get in the way for patients and families and what those barriers are when it comes to cancer care. And that can be financial concerns. It could be insurance or it could just be making time to have an appointment. Well, here to discuss the Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup is Mayo Clinic Medical Oncologist, Dr. Manetta Liu. Welcome to the program, Dr. Liu. Nice to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. We want to know about this study. Uh, Why did you do it, first of all, and why did you decide to concentrate on cancer? So I didn't personally conduct the study, but I'm happy to talk about it. The Mayo Clinic places such importance on understanding what Americans think about their own health, that this is our way of, quite frankly, taking their pulse to understand the needs for education, to help promote prevention and then advocate for treatment. How is this survey conducted and and, um, who is included in the survey? So uh, over 1,100 respondents were involved in this survey, and they were randomly selected by landline and mobile telephone numbers. And it was conducted by a professional company where these questions were asked and responses recorded. All right, hit the highlights for us. So uh, I'm grateful as a medical oncologist that this covered cancer because it's important for us to understand what people are thinking about cancer and what they're trying to do to prevent it. And then again, what the barriers are to care because that's so important for us as we're trying to provide that care. Uh, So questions were asked again respect to uh, how were you touched by cancer, if you were touched by cancer, and what your barriers might be to seeking care if you're healthy, but also if you have a diagnosis of cancer, what do you foresee as the barriers to care? And those barriers turned out to be, as as we kind of just touched on briefly, time, money, access. Um, Did it address any ways uh, to overcome some of those barriers for people? No, this was to understand, again, the mindset of Americans, not necessarily to solve the problem. That's now incumbent on us here at Mayo, as well as all the major cancer centers in the United States, and I'd argue the world as well, to try to respond. Uh, The great majority of individuals who responded to the survey did say that they felt that there was a barrier, and the most common barriers that were cited were finances as well as time. 
So finances, obviously, uh, it's a costly disease. Um, what, were there problems with uh, reimbursement from an insurance company? Is that was that a barrier? So insurance coverage was cited as another barrier outside of finances, but sometimes there's a bit of a blurred line between the two. Uh, that certainly we see it all the time in those patients who come to see us that they're worried about what their insurance is going to cover, what their deductible is going to be, um, who's going to define where they can go, right? Because some insurance providers will dictate the centers at which you can receive care. So those are the realities that we need to face as our healthcare environment is evolving minute by minute. When you came through the door and we had a chance to chat for a moment and we mentioned the word barriers, you said, oh gosh, time is terrible. Uh, And you would think if I get a cancer diagnosis, suddenly that's going to be the priority in my life is to find the time to address that. But it's not that simple, it sounds like. It is the priority we have as individuals, but there's the priority that we have just in the reality of life, right, which is that we're all working at 150, 200%. We are all working. We're worried about taking time off from work, not getting paid for the days that we are at the physician's office. How are we going to get to the physician's office? So, again, I think those are all the realities, and those are financial barriers outside of just health insurance. The uh, cost, and when you talk about the the cost of cancer, you're really not just talking about the uh, the medical expense. You're talking about time lost and and requiring help from other family members who may have to cut back on their workload, things like that, right? Absolutely, it is a there's an emotional cost, a financial cost, and a family cost that comes from a diagnosis of cancer. So when we say that 60% of the individuals who responded say that they were touched by cancer personally or through a loved one, when you expand that circle to the reality of people we know, it's close to 100%. If I'm a mom or a dad and my children get ill, of course, that's a huge time commitment as well, making sure their needs are addressed. Absolutely. What about access? Was that uh, considered a, a barrier, a difficulty for some? Yes, and I think it was uh, in part just access to, it's not just access to care. Again, it's the time to be able to access care. Did you find positives or things that were encouraging in the survey that people indicated um, might be looking improved in their situation or their hopefulness about Absolutely. Number one is the awareness of cancer. I think awareness will foster desires to get past those barriers of finances and access and time. Um, Positive in that the great majority of our respondents had hope that we were going to do better and, in fact, potentially cure cancer. I, as a medical oncologist, would love to be out of a job. (laughs) <laughs> I tell people all the time that's the goal. <laughs> well, you were supposed to be out of a job uh, 17 years ago, but it, weren't we supposed to cure cancer by the end of the last century? And it, it just it, it's, a, it's a very difficult, complex disease, isn't it? It is, and quite frankly, I, I don't know if we'll necessarily cure it, but we can beat it otherwise. Um, people who are diagnosed with cancer, irrespective of stage, we, we can learn to live with it, and we can live with it well. And that's part of the advances in treatment that we are working on. We see that 95% of people said they're trying to do something proactive. What kinds of things are they doing to try to prevent cancer? And Americans should be applauded for everything they do to adopt a healthy lifestyle. Uh, And that is number one, is adopting a healthy lifestyle. So the uh, things that we can all do to, uh, as individuals, uh, reduce the risk of developing a cancer, eating well, not drinking alcohol, exercising, not smoking. And those are the basic tenets, again, of healthy living in general. Um, 
were there some things that you that the, the survey taught you that you can potentially act on? Awareness and teaching. There were questions not only about prevention. Um, there were questions about uh, vaccines and tests that we can do to help screen for cancer or prevent cancer. And although there was some awareness of these, not everyone is adopting that. And I think part of it is, again, our ability to educate individuals who may not, unfortunately, have ready access to care, right? But these are conversations that individuals should be having with their providers, but those individuals have to get to their providers to have that conversation. So how do we promote that connection, and that's where we can try to do better in educating the public. So education is a big deal. Absolutely. should be a big deal. Uh, and that will get people to the to uh, their physicians sooner to catch the cancer earlier, which makes it more curable. Absolutely. As someone who's in the fight against cancer, very directly, did anything surprise you as far as the survey went? What surprised me, um, so... Again, about 90% of the individuals said that I'm doing something to help prevent cancer, right? Um, About half these individuals, though, said that even if something, so for skin cancer, for example, if I felt a lump or a bump, I'd be very confident to tell my provider that there was something going on, except only half of them said that I would actually go to the provider. Oh. And to me, that's concerning, right? You need to act on your awareness. And most of those were men. (laughs) No doubt. We're talking about the Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey with medical oncologist Dr. Manetta Liu. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll focus on three important topics. The HPV vaccine, skin cancer, and cancers of the colon and rectum. Plus, uh, a myth or a matter of fact, only one in three Americans have received or plan to actually get the HPV vaccine, which it turns out can be a good way to prevent cancer. All that when we come back. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Dota. We are back talking with Mayo Clinic medical oncologist, Dr. Manetta Liu. Dr. Liu has been explaining uh, the Mayo Clinic Health Checkup Survey to us. So, Dr. Liu, we got a myth or matter of fact to start this segment. Dennis? Yeah, is it true that only one in three people have gotten the HPV vaccine? Unfortunately, yes. The HPV vaccine or vaccine against the human papillomavirus is a vaccine to help prevent um, development of the viral infection subsequent in life. And what kinds of cancers do we now know that that virus can lead to? The majority of cancers that are associated with HPV infection are related to the reproductive organs. Uh, Head and neck cancer is also associated with HPV infections. That's a really sensitive topic because the primary way that men and other segments of the population as well will get throat cancer from that is through oral sex. And that's not an easy one to talk to their health care provider, but certainly can be greatly reduced if you just get the vaccine. Yeah, and I think that's a part of the sensitivity around and the lack of uptake around the vaccine itself is the stigma that can be associated with HPV by itself. To, do, to get the HP vaccination is not endorsement of sexual activity, whether it's early or with whichever partner that you choose. It's simply a means to try to prevent the development of a cancer. And it's recommended that children have this vaccine as well. Can you give us some of the parameters of the recommendation? Sure. Um, the, it's a series of vaccinations, and it should 
should be started around the age of 11 or 12. Um, it's both for boys and girls. And the goal is to get the vaccine, to get the immune system revved up before there's exposure to the virus, because you want to be able to fight the virus so it can't infect you. It used to be that it required three vaccinations. Now it's down to two, right? Correct. And it's important you have to get the vaccine hopefully before any sexual contact, right? Because then it's too late. Correct. If you are exposed to the to the virus before you get the vaccine. Right. Again, it's about mounting of your immune system before exposure to the virus. And the other thing I think that's interesting for our listeners to know is that just because you are exposed to the virus doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get cancer, right? Correct. Uh, whether you've had the vaccine or not. Correct. But we do know that the vaccine, if you get it, is almost 100% protective. It very significantly reduces the risk of having an HPV infection. There's so cancer to, of the cervix and cancer of the of the throat in both men and women. Yes. There seems to be uh, some research indicating that millennials are lagging in their response of getting that vaccine scheduled. Mm-hmm. Is that, again, that sensitivity, uh, you know, about whatever moral complications they bring into the into the question I'm sure that's part of it. It wasn't part of our survey, but just sort of understanding what the uh, mindset is of millennials and of our younger generation. It's also of the parents of that generation, right? Um, the fear sure. of vaccines and the side effects of those vaccines. Yeah, but I think education, as you have already said, is so important. I mean, if you can get a vaccine that can potentially prevent cancer, no matter what kind of cancer it is, you, right. you ought to do it. Yep. It's been around long enough that there is no good evidence that there are long-term side effects of this vaccine, right? Any adverse, untoward side effects. Correct. All right, let's talk about skin cancer. It's on the rise. It is. One thing to take a step back about, though, is that when we talk about skin cancers, it's not just about melanoma, which is the more deadly form, so to speak, of skin cancers. It also includes basal cell carcinomas or squamous cell carcinomas, which are typically benign. Most important thing are skin surveys and frequent checks. Do you can do that yourself, or should you have your physician check it periodically, check your skin? We know our bodies well, so I think it is important for us or our partners to help in surveying the entire body periodically, but no one can do it like a, a care provider. A personal story, I, uh, I worked in construction all of my college days. I grew up on my grandparents' farm, essentially, so every summer it was baling hay and never had a, a shirt on. And, and Grandma's expression was, they look so healthy, they're just brown mm-hmm. as berries. Yeah, bronze. Just, yeah. yeah, and she loved that. And so I knew I had to have this checkup. I walked through the door, and before I could even open my mouth, the dermatologist grabbed my wrist, still maintaining eye contact with me, and he said, we'll be taking that one off right there. And he pointed to a mole that turned out to be squamous cell. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they do a procedure uh, frequently called the Mohs procedure, Mm -hmm. which is impressive to me because skin cancer is one of those cancers where if you get it all off of there early enough, you're cured. Right. So how does that Mohs procedure work? What it is, is you excise the area that appears abnormal and you send it to the pathologist right away and they can tell you, yes, you've got it all. If it looks like there's still some cancer cells at the edge of the part that he took out, he or she can go back and take a little more. Remarkably minimally invasive. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. So what are we looking for? And if they've got them all, what should they watch for? So the key, again, I think the theme is prevention. Um, So you were talking about sun exposure, and I think we've all had this mindset that it's better to be brown. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's really not. Uh, Sunblock, covered 
you know, layers of covered, uh, protected clothing as you're outside. Um, don't go into a tanning bed for crying out loud. Um, so again, all of those preventive measures. And it is also, even if you are avoiding the sun, it doesn't mean that you are immune and we all have moles and we need to continue to do skin checks. Another deadly cancer, uh, if not caught in time, certainly is colorectal cancer. Yes. Um, how did that uh, arise within your survey? Can you give us a little bit of background there? So the questions in the survey relative to colon cancer were related to screening. Um, so we have the Cologuard test, which is a non-invasive stool test looking for tumor-related DNA in the stool. Uh, many people are aware of Cologuard, not everybody remarkably. Again, it's a conversation between an individual and their provider. There are certain indications for when Cologuard is useful. Uh, it does not necessarily replace the colonoscopy. Um, so again, there's specific indications that we need people to be aware of. So uh, the uh, cancer, colon cancer, is really uh, uh, quite curable if caught early, correct? Just like melanoma is quite curable. Most skin cancer is very curable if you catch them early. Um, so the problem with with uh, colon cancer is that uh, the, the gold standard for detecting it has always been colonoscopy. But uh, you have to take time off work. It's expensive, and the prep is, you don't even want to talk about it. That's uh, right. But this new test uh, allows you to send a sample from your own home. Uh, the test was developed right here at Mayo. Um, and send it to Madison, Wisconsin, and they'll tell you whether or not you've got colon cancer. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It is, and so the question is, why aren't more people doing it or at least aware of it? And that's the education piece that we need to embark on. Well, the number of people are, who are getting it has grown exponentially. But there are a lot of people who are 50, 60, 70 years old in this country who have never been screened for the reasons that we talked about. Because colonoscopy was the only way to do it or a blood fecal blood test. And that wasn't very good and it wasn't very pleasant either. Um, so I think this is a huge advance, don't you? Absolutely. The looking for DNA, whether it's in stool or blood, is where we are in technologies right now. So this and is I the think beginning. this company and the people here at Mayo are also working on a blood test to detect certain kinds of cancer. And yes, that, they are. should that happen, when that happens, it'll be huge. I'll say when. Yeah, I hope so. You know, it's so good to have you here uh, sharing the information from the uh, latest Mayo Clinic survey uh, with us, um, letting us know what you found and uh, what the future holds. And what does the future hold? We're going to cure this disease, right? Yes. Or at least be able to live with it and live, live well with, with it. it. Yes. All right. We've been talking about the Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey with medical oncologist Dr. Manetta Liu. Dr. Liu, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Tracy McRae joins me as co-host. We'll learn about the latest advances in prenatal screening. And later on the program, we will discuss common pediatric ear, nose, and throat problems with a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Hysterectomy, or the surgical removal of a woman's uterus, is a common gynecologic operation in the U.S. Dr. Megan Wasson, a Mayo Clinic medical and surgical gynecologist, says before a woman heads to the operating room, she should be aware of the various surgical and non-surgical options available. How common are hysterectomies? Well, every year, approximately 600,000 women have them. There's a total hysterectomy where the entire uterus is removed, and there's a subtotal hysterectomy where the uterus is removed, but the cervix remains in place. 
Dr. Wasson says common reasons for a hysterectomy include fibroids, which can cause heavy bleeding, endometriosis, uterine prolapse, and cancer. She encourages all women considering hysterectomy to ask three questions. Number one, is there any other management that she can utilize to address whatever issues she's having? Ask if there are medications or other procedures, such as focused ultrasound and uterine artery embolization, which can help you avoid a full hysterectomy. Second, she also needs to ask what approach is going to be best for her hysterectomy. And then number three, what the benefit or risk would be of removing her ovaries at the time of her hysterectomy. Dr. Wasson says a discussion with your health care provider is essential when considering a hysterectomy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, as you know, Tracy, pregnancy is a time of well, great anticipation and sometimes a little anxiety Just thrown a in little. there. Too. Yeah. <laughs> you might wonder uh, and worry about the health of your baby, as most people do. Most babies, they're born healthy, but it is important to understand your options for finding out about what the risks are for even becoming pregnant and what the health of your fetus is once you do become pregnant. Yeah, some new technologies are making prenatal screening much more sophisticated. It's now possible for parents to be screened for certain gene abnormalities to find out whether future children might be at risk for developing a genetic disorder, and it's done with a simple blood test. And once you do become pregnant, a blood test can tell you if your fetus has a genetic disorder such as Down syndrome. Here to discuss these advances in prenatal and fetal screening is Mayo Clinic medical geneticist, Dr. Myra Wick. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Wick. It's nice to see you again. Thank you for inviting me today. Good to have mm-hmm. you, Dr. Wick. Uh, interesting about prenatal screening. Who, who ought to have prenatal screening? Prenatal screening is available to any pregnant woman. Traditionally, we've thought about it more in the setting of a woman who's advanced maternal age, over the age of 35, because those women are at increased risk for having a baby with aneuploidy, trisomy 21 or Down syndrome 13, 18. But testing is really, or screening is really available to anybody who's interested in learning more about the health of their baby. So when we say prenatal, uh, you're talking about the woman is already pregnant and then we're checking Correct. Checking her? Correct. But uh, isn't there also some screening that's done pre-pregnancy? Right, preconception. Preconception, um, okay. So we can screen parents for... Um, for certain disorders, recessive disorders, where both parents might be carriers and at risk for having a baby affected with one of those disorders. Traditionally, we've thought about more common things like cystic fibrosis. Um, but with our advances in technology, um, many laboratories are now offering what's called an expanded carrier screen where they might care, they might test the parents for up to 120, 170 disorders, um, all recessive or for the most part recessive disorders to see if the parents are carriers. If both parents are carriers of the same disorder, they would be at risk for having a child affected with a disorder. So who ought to do that? Well, <laughs> um, saying because then it's decision time. But so who does right. that? Yeah. So um, it's really available to anybody, um, anyone who wants to learn more about their genetic risk is is somebody that might be a candidate. Do you have more and more patients that are interested in this? We do. 
mm-hmm. we're seeing more patients that are are interested, especially um, if they're going to um, kind of more um, in-depth measures to become pregnant. So if somebody's going through in vitro fertilization, um, they might choose to also do a big carrier screen to find out, you know, they're going through all this work to become pregnant. They want to make sure they're having the healthiest pregnancy possible. And how accurate is this testing? I mean, when you're done with the test, and it's a blood test of both yep. spouses, right? Yep. Then can you say, you know, there's a 98% chance that you're going to have a baby without a genetic abnormality? No. <laughs> uh, there are probably 25,000 genes and over 4,000 genetic disorders. We're screening for, uh, you know, 200 or so. We're looking at things that are, are more common, um, but it, it doesn't rule out all genetic disorders. It doesn't rule out um, things that might be partially genetic or, or have um, multi-genes involved like cleft lip or palate, um, congenital heart defects. Some of those things are not single gene disorders. But you can reassure the parents that there's nothing obvious on the things that you can test for. Correct. Yeah. And it's a good idea, you think, for, for most couples? I think as long as the the couple has been um, adequately counseled um, so they understand what the limitations of the testing are and residual risk. And, uh, and you would say if someone, if they have some sort of condition in their family history, then that's who would be a person who's most interested? Well, not necessarily. So if there's a, a known family history, for example, if we know somebody has a family history of cystic fibrosis, we're going to test them specifically for that, and we might do a more in-depth test for that. Um, but those individuals might also be interested in learning more about their genetics as a whole. Are there certain instances uh, um, where you can say to the parents, there's a 25% chance or there's a 50% chance that you're going to have a baby born with X? Yes. So for any of the recessive disorders, if both parents are carriers, so cystic fibrosis would be a, a common example, um, we know that, there, that that couple's at 25% risk for having an affected child. Let's talk about cell-free DNA testing. Yeah. What does that mean? So this is a relatively new screening test. Once a patient is pregnant um, and after about 10 weeks gestation, we can take a sample of blood from the mom. Um, When a mom is pregnant, the placenta is actually shedding DNA into the maternal bloodstream. And um, we can take the blood sample from mom. There's a combination of DNA from mom and the baby. Hold on. How can you tell if it's the mom's DNA or the baby's DNA? Well, we can look for differences from what was paternally inherited. (laughs) Um, So we can use something called massively parallel sequencing, where we amplify the DNA millions of times um, and then use a complicated um, calculation algorithm. Um, A lot of those algorithms rhythms are um, put together by the laboratory and very complicated, but they count the number of sequences from the various chromosomes. And if the baby's affected with Down syndrome, for example, we'd see extra counts from chromosome 21. Um, what about uh, testing an amniocentesis? Yep. W- which women ought to ha- have that? Not a blood test, but where you actually take some of the amniotic fluid and test that. Right. Great question. So the cell-free DNA is a screen. So if that comes back abnormal, it tells the couple that they're at increased risk for that condition, but it doesn't definitively tell them that the baby is affected. So in order to, to 
prove the results, we would need to do an amniocentesis where we actually take a sample of the amniotic fluid that contains cells from the baby and then do the, the chromosome analysis to, to verify the cell-free. Similarly, if we have uh, a woman that comes in and her ultrasound shows multiple anomalies, maybe um, the baby has a, a cardiac condition, um, that would be another case where we see abnormalities on the ultrasound that we would recommend an invasive test or an amniocentesis. And let's finish off this discussion with whole exome sequencing. Yes. What does that mean? So um, whole exome sequencing is the latest and greatest in genetic testing. Um, we're just kind of trying, starting to enter that um, realm with prenatal screening. Mm-hmm. Um, it does require an amniocentesis or an invasive. We wouldn't do it with cell-free. Um, but we're essentially looking at the whole exome, all of the encoded genes in an individual to see if, um, if there's a genetic condition. So what about the folks that say this is... Uh this is a bad road to go down because you're talking about boutique babies. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's slippery slope. Right. Um, So right now the whole exome we're using in the situation where we have a baby with multiple anomalies, multiple Mm -hmm. findings, um, and we've done some traditional testing and we've come up without a diagnosis. Um, So it's really meant for a very specialized um, group at this point in time. So does insurance cover this? Not always. Um, and the cost um, is substantial. Usually we're talking seven to $10,000. Um, and, and the insurance is all over the map. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. while medical genetics has come a long way, hasn't mm-hmm. it? And prenatal screening, the new technologies are unbelievable. It is. Thanks for sharing the information with us. You're Thank welcome. You. Dr. Myra Wick, <laughs> medical geneticist, Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss common pediatric ear, nose, and throat problems with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, you know, there is nothing as soothing as the sound of a baby breathing. It's been a while in our household. I know about you. But, you know, anyone who has had children knows that from time to time there could be problems. Now, it it could be a baby with a snotty nose, a toddler with an earache, or a child with a sore throat. You know, it's not easy being a mom, is it? It's very hard. And it's even (laughs) harder to be a baby. While these are common ear, nose, and throat problems, Sometimes a bigger issue is the underlying cause and may require specialized treatment. Here to discuss ear, nose, and throat problems in children is pediatric otolaryngologist. Yeah, otorhinolaryngologist. Mm-hmm. Otorhin- <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shives, you're going to do this one for me. Here to discuss ear, nose, and throat problems in children is pediatric otorhinolaryngologist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, did I? I got an oto ear. Oh, thank rhino you. Rhino nose, mm-hmm. larynx, larynx, throat, oh. gologist. I don't know what that means. It means he's a doctor. Who That's right. That stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for taking care of that for me, Doctor Shives, and welcome to the program, Doctor Balakrishna. It's Thanks great to have you me. here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so the sweet sound of a baby breathing. Uh, most of us have, have had the experience of, of listening to that. But what if you hear a noise? What if uh, what if it, something doesn't sound right? So a lot of different noises can mean a lot of different things. The most common thing we see is snoring. And the good thing about snoring is it's usually not an emergency. As long as the baby's not working hard to breathe or struggling, as long as the baby's eating okay, it's usually something that can get worked out over time. Um, And that's by far the most common thing we see. The 
things that worry us more. Um, so a little snoring yeah. is okay. A little snoring is okay. Most kids will outgrow that, and sometimes we have to treat it, but even then it's usually not an emergency. Okay. Um, the things that worry me more and you know, that I hope will worry parents more and lead them to get their child checked out would be things like high-pitched or squeaky breathing or what we sometimes call Darth Vader breathing or washing machine breathing, <laughs> where it's sort of a low, rattly, in-and-out kind of noise. And if we hear those things, then we think about some sort of narrowing of the airway, and that's a little more concerning. And that uh, can happen in a baby, and is that something they were born with? It could be either. So some babies are born with it, and the most common reason we hear babies having squeaky breathing is a condition called laryngomalacia, which means basically the top of their voice box is a little floppy. That's something that they're born with or they develop very early in life. Um, Other conditions, uh, again, they can be born with like narrowing of the trachea, the windpipe. Um, That can sometimes cause that Darth Vader-y breathing. Um, And then there are other conditions that can be acquired that they can develop after birth. For instance, croup is a super common one where you get a viral infection, you get some swelling and narrowing at the top of the windpipe, and that leads to noisy breathing. Um, so it can be from a wide variety of causes. Are these just breathing problems, or are they also swallowing problems? That's a great question. Uh, most babies, I mean, really, if you think about it, for a baby to coordinate suck, swallow, breathe, and to eat and breathe at the same time is very hard for any baby. So if you throw a wrench in the works and you give them some breathing problems, they're very likely to have swallowing problems as well. Mm. And the other way around, if they have swallowing problems and they're choking when they feed, it's harder to breathe. So they often do go together. Have you ever? Did you ever have a child with croup? No. Pretty scary, isn't it? Thank goodness. And, it can be. Aren't you supposed to open the refrigerator door and let them breathe cool air? Right, or take them for a drive, a night drive with the windows open. Yeah, that cool kind of uh, cool air can help soothe the airway and reduce some of the swelling. Sometimes. Is that a viral infection? It's, it's almost always viral. And yes. and, and what, what causes the noisy breathing or the difficult breathing? Well, what happens is that the the whole airway from the voice box all the way to the bottom of the windpipe and the branches to the lungs, all of that gets swollen and irritated with croup. But even in the normal airway in a baby, the narrowest point is right below the vocal cords. And so that becomes even more of a bottleneck. And when you get air moving through that really narrow area, you get that rattly, croupy breathing, and you also get that barky cough that mm-hmm. croup is known for. But really nothing to do about it. Not unless the child is in real distress. If they're working hard to breathe or turning blue or really struggling, then that's a reason to go to the ER and get checked out. I learned that right away. (laughs) They turn blue. Yeah, that's that's a a very bad bad thing. thing. (laughs) So is the main culprit like tonsils and adenoids, or what is usually Mm. the problem? So tonsils and adenoids are the main culprit for things like snoring and sleep apnea. Um, And uh, that's by far the most common reason sleep apnea is for taking tonsils and adenoids out of a child. But these other types of breathing problems that we're talking about are more, a little bit lower down. They're more voice box and windpipe based. And when we're talking about sleep apnea in mm-hmm. uh, children or babies, uh, are they suffering the same that effects that adults do, that they're not getting quality sleep? Exactly right. So wow. their sleep is disrupted, they're tired, they're irritable. And in children and babies, sometimes you see it as poor growth, poor weight gain. In school-age kids, you see it as attention and concentration problems. And then, of course, over many years, you get the adult problems of heart disease and stroke and things like that. So how much snoring in children like babies and school-age children is okay? And how much is, oh, they're snoring too much, we should go see the doctor about it? 
That is a really hard question. <laughs> Looking at a child clinically, snoring by itself is concerning because even snoring alone without breathing pauses or sleep apnea has been shown to be associated with decreased school performance. So uh, really any persistent snoring that lasts for several months or more probably should get checked. But it's not necessarily something to worry hugely about or something that's likely to be dangerous unless it's associated with those breathing pauses and things like that. Tonsils and adenoids, it doesn't seem like uh, kids have those removed as often as they used to when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, you had a couple of strep infections. They said, your your tonsils got to go. And you were jealous of any kid who had his tonsils (laughs) out because they stayed in the hospital for three days and uh, had nothing but chocolate malts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not true anymore, is it? I mean, you're very reluctant to do a tonsil. Now it's strawberry. Exactly. Thanks. Are different. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Dr. Shive. So part of the issue is that we want to avoid surgery in children whenever possible. We want to avoid putting them under anesthetic. We want to avoid putting them through the pain of surgery and so on. Um, but part of it, too, is that the reasons for taking out tonsils and adenoids have changed. So we used to do it a lot for strep. Now it's done a lot more for sleep apnea. And for sleep apnea, there are other treatment options we can try first, like CPAP and medications and things. So You're right that it's less common. Another common surgery that I don't seem to hear so much anymore is getting tubes in your ears. Uh Is that increasing or is it decreasing? You know, it's still extremely common. So um, it is the most common surgery kids have in the U.S. It's about a million kids a year. And why do they have it? They have it either for recurrent ear infections and there are guidelines that say how many per year, uh, or for fluid in the ears behind the eardrum that doesn't go away after several months. Mm -hmm. And why does the fluid accumulate? And is that a setup for recurrent infections? Uh, Yes. So the answer to the second question is yes, absolutely. That fluid can get reinfected. It can also just affect the hearing and therefore affect language development, which is the other concern. Um, The reason the fluid happens in the first place is because the eustachian tubes, which help us all pop our ears and equalize the pressure in our ears, don't work as well in children. And so we need to do something else to help them equalize that pressure. You suggested that we should talk about foreign bodies in the Ah, ear, nose, and throat. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious to find out why. I have three children, and two of them did it on the same day. So I don't have experience that happens. Um, Really, the biggest thing is batteries. I just wanted to take a second to talk about button batteries or disc batteries. Um, Those are incredibly dangerous. So what we know is that in children who swallow those little hearing aid type batteries, that they can basically erode a hole through the esophagus, the swallowing tube, within three hours. So if a parent has any concern that their child might have swallowed a button battery, they need to go to the emergency room right away. Hmm. That's got to get taken out immediately. Never heard that before. Well, <laughs> things you need to be concerned about when it comes to the ear, nose, and the throat from otorhinolaryngologist Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.